probably over 70 years ago at least, there were two brothers, and their names were Homer and Langley Collier, and they were the sons of a very respected and successful New York doctor, and both of his sons, Homer and Langley, had earned college degrees. Homer had studied at Columbia University to become an attorney, and when their father died, his sons inherited really the family home and the family estate, and the two men who were the sons at that time were bachelors. They were financially secure, but the Collier brothers chose a peculiar lifestyle, not at all consistent with the material status that their inheritance gave them. They actually lived in total seclusion. They boarded up the windows of their house. They padlocked all the doors in their home. All their utilities, including water, were shut off. And furthermore, no one was ever seen either entering, coming, or going from the house. So in March of 1947, the police received an anonymous telephone tip that a man had died inside the boarded up house and unable to force their way in through the front door they entered the house through a second story window in other words they couldn't get in so they had to get a fire truck kind of a hook and ladder I've seen the picture of this and send the hook and ladder over to the window the second story to get in and inside they found Homer Collier's corpse on a bed he had died, and the macabre scene was set against an really an equally grotesque background because the brothers, once they got in that window, collected everything, and really what they were collecting was junk. Their house was crammed full of broken machinery, auto parts, boxes, appliances, folding chairs, musical instruments, rags, odds and end, and bundles of old newspaper, and it was all virtually worthless. There were sewing machines in there. I, I'll stop from giving you the list. But it was just a mountain of debris that blocked that front door. And so the investigators were forced to use that upstairs window for weeks until the evacuators could actually uh, work to a clear path to the door three weeks later. That's how much stuff was in there. And as they were still hauling tons of refuse away, someone made a grisly discovery. Langley's body was buried beneath a pile of rubbish six feet away from where his brother Homer had died. And Langley had died and been crushed to death in a booby trap that he built to protect his collection from intruders so it was all boarded up and he made this booby trap and the garbage eventually removed from the Collier house totaled more than 140 tons and really when I read that article sitting in a doctor's office it really made a sad but fitting parable of the way many people in the church live and although the brothers had an inheritance that was more than sufficient for the rest of their life. 
They live their lives in self-deprived, self-imposed deprivation. And so neglecting the abundant resources that were theirs to enjoy, Homer and Langley instead turned their home really into a dump. And spurning their father's sumptuous legacy, they binged instead on the scraps of the world. You know, as I thought about those two brothers, with a wealth of inheritance, all the resources from their doctors, their dad's inheritance, never having to work again, they squandered it. They wasted the privilege. And really, as I thought about that, I thought as Paul opens here the book of Ephesians, as you turn there in chapter 1, we have been a people that have been incredibly blessed. In fact, as we've looked in verse 11, we've been given an inheritance. We've obtained an inheritance. That inheritance, in verse 14 of chapter 1, is guaranteed, as we know, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He furthermore would pray in chapter 1 that we would know the hope of that glorious inheritance. So he begins and he opens up this chapter in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he begins to walk through there the doctrine of salvation. But as we get to verse 15, he starts to pray. He starts to pray. In fact, if you look at Ephesians 1.16... It's really the control of the entire end of that first chapter from 15 through verse 23. The lead verb is in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you. That's what controls the back end of Ephesians chapter 1. And so he prays. And there is an answer how we might not waste our golden inheritance. First, we've got to understand our position in Christ and what he's done. But secondly, in 15 through 23, he tells us how to pray. He instructs us on what to pray for. He gives you, really does Paul in his prayer, a guideline, though he's not trying to give a guideline. He's just praying under the fullness of the Spirit as he writes out the Word of God. And he'll tell us how to pray for the saints as he did. He'll tell us what we should pray for. He'll give us the the content of our prayer. And so we've been looking at this the last four weeks here. He provides two essentials that flow out of this prayer. He gives the reason for his prayer. And then he secondly gives the request of his prayer. The reason for his prayer, you could look at verse 15. He opens and he, he says the word, for this reason. Well, what reason, Paul, in 115? Because of what he's just said in 3 through 14. For this reason, he says, When I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your faith toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. For the reason of what Paul has just written about. But then that reason, uh, thanksgiving, that led to those spiritual blessings was then matched, secondly, with the request. And from the text, in verse 17 down through 23, he makes four broad requests, four bold requests. In other words, here's the reason, but here's my request, Paul says, 
And here's how he's praying. And the four requests there, the first one, we've looked at the first three, was to know God. Look at verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, he prays for these believers at Ephesus that the Holy Spirit would give to the saints wisdom and revelation, and that wisdom and revelation is the knowledge of him. It's an insight of how he prayed for them, how we can pray for the people that we lift up before the Lord. You say, well, what do I pray for? You pray as Paul did for these saints that we would know God. And then secondly, he says that we would know what is the hope of our calling. He prays with the future in mind. Certainly, he's thankful for life in Christ, but he's praying for the hope of our calling, that ultimate salvation, that ultimate redemption that is ours. And then thirdly, he prays that we would know our glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ. That's how he prays, and that ought to govern our prayers. So here's his request, to know God, to know the hope of our calling, and to know, thirdly, our glorious inheritance. But we left off on that last prayer request, to know his power. In fact, look at verse 19 there. He prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. He's praying that we would know something of that greatness of his power. And certainly when we think of that word power, I'm thinking about in all the reading that you could make on the city of Ephesus. Of course, they were ruled by a grotesque false god called Artemis. You could read this in the book of Acts. And in that culture, at the city of Ephesus, Artemis wielded that ungodly power. There were magical curses. There were incantations. They were claiming spiritual power through ritual. And Paul wants you to know the power that resides in you that is released in prayer. In other words, don't forget as we walk through this, this is the request of his prayer, that you would know the power that lives inside of you. Now, he describes this power. Look at verse 19. He, he mentions it's, it's unique. I don't want to give you a, a Greek lesson here, but he just has a bunch of different words to describe the greatness of his power. He, he, he says in 19, the word power, it's the word dunamis, if you will. We get our English word dynamite from it. He's praying that we would understand the greatness, I just call it, of God's raw power, if you will. In other words, that strength of his power. He's omnipotent. And then he says in verse 19, toward us who believe according to the working, and there is another word, energia, the working of his active power. So he's got raw power, but God has a working active power, then he mentions another word when he says in verse 19 of his great might, that word there for great is the ideal of power and might and physical power. 
so beloved, he's just piling up words to assure you that God's power is needed, that your hope, that your inheritance might be realized. And so he's praying that we would know, know God, that we would know something of our hope, know something of our inheritance, and it's linked here to this great power. Now you might say, well, nah, how is this power illustrated? Look in your Bible, in verse 20, he explains it, that he worked, there's many things that describe God's power, but here's one of them, that he worked in Christ when he raised them from the dead. In other words, he turns to the most glorious of all events, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's going to describe the greatness of this power, if you will, in four actions. Okay, I'm just giving you the layout. Four actions of God's power in one event. And that one event is summarized in the resurrection. In other words, as he gets to the fourth request that we would know his power, he highlights the resurrection and what follows from the cross and his resurrection is four bold events. Number one, that God raised him from the dead, speaking of the power of God. Number two, regarding his son, he exalted him into glory. Thirdly, he subjected all things to him. And fourth, he appointed him as head over all things in the church. Let, let me just walk you through and it will set the table for our time in communion. First, God raised Christ from the dead. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And what's amazing is God not only raised the Lord... But in 1 Corinthians 6.14, He will raise us up through His power. In other words, here's how you can pray. You can pray for your classmates. You can pray for your parents. You can pray for your children, for your grandchildren, for this church. That we would understand the power of the resurrection. Beloved, if you can grasp this. The power that not only raised the Lord from the dead, Paul says, will raise us up through his power. In other words, that power that raised him in the last day will raise up, raise us up as well. 1 Corinthians 15:43, Paul says there in that great passage on the resurrection, it is sown in honor, it is, it is sown, excuse me, in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, speaking of our body, but it is raised in power. So he also mentions something like this in Colossians 2.12, that you were raised with him, he was raised, you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. So Paul prays that we would have an awareness of God's power that is already available to us. But he not only raised him from the dead. Secondly, in verse 20 and 21, he exalted Christ to glory. Look at the text in verse 20. He raised him from the dead and seated him, speaking of Christ, at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So secondly, he not only raised them, but he exalted Christ to power. The, the Bible says that he seated him at his right hand. And so not only was he raised from the dead, but Jesus Christ, as we know in the book of Acts, ascended into glory and was placed at the right hand, if you will, in authority. And while he's seated at the right hand in heaven, it's, we know this, that he's not there to rest, he is there to rule. So he's put at the right hand. In, uh, you remember back in verse 20, it says there, when it, says, when it speaks of the right hand, he, he's quoting Psalm 110. And I think it's interesting, you can look that up, read that. When it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then it says in 110 verse 1, until I make all your enemies your footstool. In other words, power is seen in the resurrection of Christ. Power is seen in the exaltation of Christ. Because of his work on your behalf, he is seated, if you will, and the psalmist says, until all your enemies are at your footstool. You know, when you look back at Psalm 110, it's speaking there of David's ascension to the throne. But here it's quoted because that human king that ascended to that physical human throne would now be the human divine king in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sense is, is that when the enthroned king reigned there, he reigned with power and he reigned with authority given to that human king by God himself. And now it's the divine king here fulfilled in Christ. And the description there is that he will defeat all of his enemies. In fact, I think it's on the screen. You can look at it later. Psalm 110.5, the Lord, same psalm, is at your right hand. And he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. In other words, Paul's just laying out for us here that the raised, exalted Christ is king over the whole earth. In fact, the text says there, you see that in 21, he's far above all rule. In other words, by his death, by his resurrection, Jesus Christ has been exalted. That's what the text says, far above all rule. Now, you can check that word rulers. Um, often it could mean human rulers. But I think there's something even more there. I, I think he's speaking primarily here about demonic power. Demonic rulers, demonic uh, ranks, if you will, in the evil system in which we live. Look over at chapter 3 in verse 10. Here, when he gets to the mystery of Christ, it says that through the church in 3.10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers, there's our word, and authorities, and it speaks of them in the heavenly places. So Jesus Christ, by virtue of his death, 
by virtue of his resurrection, was placed not just above, but far above all rule. In fact, look over to Ephesians chapter 6. You know this one probably by heart. Where it says there, we do not wrestle, in verse 12, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here Christ, by virtue of His resurrection, by virtue of His exaltation, God gave Him and raised Him and exalted Him by His power and He goes far above all rulers. In other words, He's the incomparable Christ. And maybe as Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, obviously they're living under and in the reign of Roman denomination, uh, dominion. And obviously after Rome would come Greece. But here what the Scripture is telling us Jesus Christ today is far above all rank, far above all powers, far above all evil power, far above China and North Korea, far above Great Britain, far above the United States, far above all power. All power would include Russia, far above, he says, all power. Then he uses a second term there, far far above all authority over governments and over Satan himself. In other words, because of his exaltation, Christ is given a position above all rule, all authority, all power. And I think, again, the power, according to Ephesians 6.12, is above all cosmic power. It's above all demonic power. He's an exalted position above all rule, all authority, all power. And then it even uses the word dominion. In other words, today, Jesus Christ is far above all nuclear power. He's far above all economic power. He's far above all political power. He's not just above some of the powers. He's above all power. He's above the United States Supreme Court. He's over the democracy of this nation. Listen, this is the power that resides in you. So when you pray, and when you pray for others... Do we grasp the greatness and the immeasurable greatness of his power? How do you pray for your nieces? How do you pray for your nephews? How do you pray for your grandchildren? Well, certainly there's much that would come in prayer, but here's a way to pray that we'd grasp something of this power. But that's not all. In fact, look at the text again in verse 21. He says, he says in every name that is named... He's far above Artemis. He's far above every king. He's far above every judge. He's far above every president. He's far above every prime minister. He's above every name that is named. In fact, you remember back in Philippians that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now you understand, this is God. God took on a body. God took on a flesh. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. So listen, beloved, this is part of the power that resides inside you in the power of God to raise and exalt his son. So he's above every name, but I feel like a little bit of a commercial. But there's more because look down at the text. Not only in this age, he's above every name that is named, but not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In other words, he's been exalted to that place of power and there's no term limits on his authority. There will be no election in four years, okay? He is empowered. He will never be impeached. He will reign forever and ever. So here's bold declarations. Number one, he raised him from the dead. Number two, God not only raised him, but exalted Christ to glory. And thirdly, here's just the third bold action. God subjected all things to Christ. Look at the text. Amazing text in verse 22. And, he links it there, he put all things under his feet. Stop right there. So thirdly, he subjected all things to Christ. In other words, he's really giving you a demonstration not only the life of Christ, but the death of Christ, but even more, all that happened and transpired after his death, he was exalted into glory and he subjected, he put in all things in subjection under his feet. That word there for subjection, okay, it just means to subject, but it kind of means to arrange under or to place under. And when you look at that word, to subject or put all things in subjection to him, it's a military term. Sometimes it's submission. But it refers to the kind of to subordinates lining up under a superior officer. In other words, God has not only raised him, exalted him, but he has lined everything up in the universe in subjection to the sovereign power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll note there, look again at the text. He put all things under his feet, it says. Now, we really believe, I believe that he's, he's looking at Psalm 8-6, where everything was placed under his feet, the defeated king, you say, what, what do you mean to be placed? It's in subjection under his feet. Uh, he, obviously, he's using words to describe that. And I think you're familiar with this, that a defeated king of an army was forced to lay before the victorious king, and the victorious king would put his boots, his heel, on the head of the defeated king, literally. They would bring him in, the, the victorious king, take the defeated king, if he wasn't killed in battle, they would bring him back into that place and the king literally would put his boots, would put his heel on the head of that defeated king. And then sometimes after that, they would quickly kill them or subject them. Here's the picture here. I don't know what it is, if some of you are visiting, who you think Jesus Christ is. But let me tell you who he is according to the power of God. God raised him. God, God exalted him. 
okay, far above all rule and authority, then God Almighty placed all things in subjection under His feet as an expression of authority and power. Now you say, well, how many things, Pastor? Look back at the text. It says in 22 that He put all things. In other words, He put the entire universe under Him. Everything in heaven and in earth, in hell, in time, in space, in eternity. He put north and south and east and west. It's all in subjection to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, let me encourage you, Everything you will ever face, and I mean everything, good, bad, present, past, even the future, is subjected under Christ's power. This is by virtue of His death, His exaltation, and the subjection of all things. Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper expressed it so well. And I I trust you could just maybe even write this down and remember it. He says, there is not one square in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ in His sovereignty does not cry out, mine. You know, some of you, I'm just going to put this in. You think far too much of yourself. Far too much of your own control. Those of you who might be here without Christ. Your every moment, your every breath, your every heartbeat is under the sovereignty of this subjection. And if it wasn't but for the kindness of God, you wouldn't even be breathing right now. And some of you might think you have a better plan than God. And you might be like me, my own heart, waiting in my mind. I've told you that, that I was going to wait till I was 35 until I bowed my knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say, he's already put all things in subjection to him. You say, well, pastor, how did he do that? Why is Christ in this place? Look back in Ephesians 1.7. Maybe you're right there. Because He died in our place. It says in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. But it was by virtue of His death, by virtue of His resurrection, by virtue of His exaltation, that all these things have been subjected to Him. You might be saying, well, what gives Him the right to do this? Well, first of all, He's God. He's God's Son. And he submitted in his humanity to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But because of his death, God then exalted him above the name, above every name. In fact, would you look over just for a moment in the book of Colossians? In the book of Colossians, let me show you this and show you even similar phrasing in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. But he talks about the similar themes in some of his letters, right? But, but watch the familiarity or the similarity come out in Colossians 1.11. He prays that you, I'm in 1.11, may be strengthened. How? 
with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And then he talks about giving thanks to the Father just like he did in Ephesians who has qualified us to share in the inheritance. There's the inheritance of the saints in light. Why? Because he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And so we've been qualified because of what he's done, because of the work of Christ on the cross. Look over in Colossians chapter 2. He'll express this there. In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 13, he says, you were dead in your trespasses, very similar to Ephesians 2, 1, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made you alive together with Him. How do He do that? Having forgiven us all of our trespasses. But how do He do that? He canceled, verse 14, the record of the debts that stood against us with the legal demands. And it says this, He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So He not only redeemed you and took your sins, but look at verse 15. He disarmed. It was the work on the cross. It was His resurrection. He disarmed the rulers, probably the evil rulers, and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And obviously He did that by virtue of His resurrection. And so here's the work of Christ. You say, well, why are all things subjected to Him? Because of His work on the cross. Listen, take your Bible and look over to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. I, I, I want to show you something that <clears throat> ministered to my own heart even this week. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about how things are subjected to Him, but not fully. Because even as I said, is he, if He's above all rule, if He's above all authority, if He's above all power, and if He's above all dominion, it really doesn't look like that, does it? I mean, He is. He's sovereign over every element, but frankly, doesn't look like it's very much in subjection. And some of you may have come in here so sad because of the outcome of the election just for the sole issue of life inside of a mother's womb. I mean, you look and you see chaos. Other nations of the globe said that the United States has lost who they were. But here in Hebrews, look at it. In chapter 10, in verse 12, speaking of the work of Christ, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, we know that, He, same language in 10.12, sat down at the right hand of God. Now look what it says though. His work is finished, but it says in verse 13, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. Now that's fascinating. He's sovereign over. Everything is subjected to Him in principle, but He's, you see the language, waiting 
Verse 13, until that time when his enemies are put under his footstool. You know, it's interesting when you think, is it all, is it all subjected to him? Yes, he's sovereign over it. But it says this in Romans 16, 20. It says there, I think it comes up, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You say, but Colossians already spoke about his death and disarming the rulers and the authorities, gaining victory over death itself by dying in our place and raising it, but it, it says there it will soon crush Satan under your feet. I, I take it to mean that he's bruised now. A death blow has been given to him, but one day he will be crushed. Let me, let me show you Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Trying to illustrate here how is all things in subjection to him. But in Hebrews... In chapter 2, a magnificent statement there. It says in 2.8, well back up in 2.7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels, right? His incarnation. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. No question, he sits at the right hand of the Father. It says in 2.8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. But look. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. True. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, it's what we can call in the scripture the already not yet. He's dealt a blow to Satan himself. He's dealt a blow on behalf of your sin and my sin. He put our sin on the cross and the decrees that were against us. But at the same time, there's coming a day where he will be all in all. In fact, let me, let me show you this. In, well, I showed you that in Hebrews. Go over to 1 Corinthians, or maybe it comes up on the screen here. And then, we're not at the end. Then, remember his whole passage on the resurrection, comes the end. Then, he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying in other words, he dealt a death blow, but there's coming a day where he will destroy every rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain, the idea is it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. You say, what does that mean? Well, it is evident, it is plain that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, he's going to put all things under his feet. 
except God the Father, who subjected all things under Christ. And when all things are subjected to Him, then all, then it says, then the Son Himself will be also subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him. I love that phrase. That God may be all in all. Here is the assurance, if you will, that the future will be consummated without fail. Let me say it this way to you, beloved. Satan has been bruised, but one day he will be crushed. One day he will be divested of all evil, of all of his weapons, of all of his strategies, and Christ will finally bring to the end the person of Satan and all human and evil and wicked rulers. Beloved, let me say that the devil is a defeated enemy. The cross dealt that blow to him. He, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. You say, well then how do you explain where we are in the present? Well, I explain it to you this way. I was thinking about that this week. The devil, like in the game of chess, has already been checkmated. Okay? The victory's already been declared. The victory's already been won in the person of Christ. He's been checkmated, if you will. Is that an English word? Check, it's checkmate, but I'll say checkmated, okay? When I was a young boy, uh, I used to play chess with my dad. And uh, my dad was really good. And he, as a young boy, he would say, Scott, let me show you the game, and then he, He'd show me the game and he'd teach me the game. And right about the time that I thought I was getting good at the game of chess, like, I'm like, let's go, Dad. I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight at that point. Uh, we begin a game. Out goes the pawn. Out goes the other pawn. And in a matter of about eight to ten moves that I couldn't see on the board, my dad would say, Scott, your check made it. <laughs> or checkmate on you. And as a young boy, I got very frustrated. I couldn't even see how I was in checkmate. He, and he said, oh no, Scott, the game's over. And as a young boy, I said, oh no, the game's not over. I, I, I'm going to come back. I'm going I'm to pull this together. He goes, Scott, we're just making moves. You're all done right now. And I'd be like, no, no. I probably started to cry. No, I'm not done, Dad. And uh, sure enough, I played out the pieces on the board, but I couldn't affect the ultimate outcome of the game and that is the reality of the death the resurrection and the subjection of all things to Jesus Christ he is a defeated enemy he still engages of course Ephesians six twelve in spiritual warfare but the truth is is that in Christ victory has been won by his death and resurrection and exaltation and he's put all things under his feet now and one day all things under his feet will be realized as he moves into the thousand year reign of Christ and then into the heavenly places after that. There is a coming day, there will be an ultimate victory and it will be King Jesus. You know, I was thinking about this this week. You know, we live, I think, in a democratic state. But that's not biblical. I mean, we could see some of the benefit of that. 
But I just want you to know in the end, King Jesus will be over it all. He'll be not only over all of us, if you're a believer, he'll be all over, over all of the universe, and no one will be able to rise up against him. He will not only crush sin in the thousand-year reign, but in the eternal state, listen, there'll be no more Satan, no more evil, no more temptation, no more weakness, no more doctors, no more lawyers. Why? Because King Jesus will be over all of it. You might even say, I lost my job. My spouse has died. I just had a good friend of mine over 30 years, probably 55 years of age, just die of a sudden heart attack. That happens. Some of you might say, I've been diagnosed with cancer. Some of you may have lost everything. And I just want to assure you one thing, you're not in heaven yet. So he raised Christ from the dead. He exalted Christ to glory. He subjected all things to him. And the final piece is this, is that he appointed Christ as head of the church. This is amazing. Look at it in 122. He gave him, God gave him as head over all things to the church. So the fourth here, illustration of his power all under the resurrection, is that he appointed him as head over the church, gave him, you say head, obviously metaphor, but it speaks of the ruling authority. Some people think it means source. Sometimes the word means source, but here it's ruling authority with power over everything. No nation is more important than the ones who have been called out by God to be expressed in the local church. His power right now is revealed in and through the local church. There are some people and, you know, who would say, ah, he must be speaking here. He's head over the universal church. You've got the universal church at large. You've got the local church, you know, on the other. And I think, how would he not say that he's over this church? He's manifesting his rule through the local church in the lives of spirit-filled men and women. He has the ruling power and authority over everything. God gave Christ over the church in this present world. His decrees are already determined. His decisions are absolute. The Lord of the universe is the head of the church. And we do not kneel to a state. We do not kneel to a political group. We do not kneel to the Pope. Christ is the head and source of all authority. We answer to him. In fact, look at it again there. It says that he gave him his head over, again, all things to the church. That would be things in heaven, things on earth, things in hell, whether it be human or angelic. There is nothing outside of all things. Carson the great scholar said, not a drop of rain can fall outside the orb of Jesus' sovereignty. All of our days, our health, our joys, our victories, our tears, our prayers fall within the sweep of his sovereignty. And so he appointed him, look again, his head over all things to the church. And then he says here, I love that word, the church. It's the first time that it appears. It's just the word ecclesia. 
Uh, it just, it's a wonderful word. It's the called out ones by God. We'll see that in other parts of Ephesians. But he's over, he's the head over all things to the church. Then verse 23, which is his body. I love that phrase. The church is not a building, it's saints. The church is not an organization. It's a living, growing organism that derives its power from Christ who is the head. And look what Christ does for his body. Look, the last phrase, he's the fullness of him who fills all in all. I just think it's speaking of the sufficiency of Christ. All that the church needs, it receives from Christ. Christ supplies our every need. And one of the ways that we can know the reality of this is through prayer. It's through prayer. You're praying that we would understand something of this power. Something of this great position here. Something of this thought here that he appointed Christ as head of the church. Listen, let me just say gently to you. <laughs> Shea spoke about the membership class. And I, I mean this genuinely. Either jump in and join here, but get on somewhere. Because he not only raised them from the dead, he not only exalted Christ to glory, he not only subjected all things to him, but he appointed Jesus Christ as the head. All of our movements come from him, which is his body. And Jesus has chose to reveal himself in the fullness through the expression of the local body. And even more than that, he's going to supply all of our needs. He's going to fill us with whatever we need. The church is his body. He is the head. He directs it. The church is his fullness. He fills it is the thought. He supplies us with all of his resources. He gives us that to us. He, he who possesses the fullness of God in Colossians here is empowers us with all we need. Let, let me just encourage you. Say, what does that mean? Huh. You're not trapped right now going forward with our country. You are not a victim, okay? And let me express it this way. You're not powerless against evil. There is actually something you can do, and what you can do is pray. You can pray that you would understand that we would grasp, even as a corporate body, something of this metaphor here that He's the head, the church is His body, right? We can pray. Listen, rather than spurning, if you will, the Father's legacy, pray. Okay? Pray. This is how you can pray. This is what is available to us. Prayer becomes a means to download the power of God. Listen, here's four requests. I want to be this simple for you. Here's how you can pray for your daughter. Here's how you can pray for your son. Here's how you can pray for your fiancé. If you're on staff in our junior high and in our high school, here's how you can pray. Elders, here's how you can pray. Ladies, women's leaders, here's how you can pray. You can pray that people would know God, they would know His hope, they would know their inheritance, and they would know His power, okay? You know, I was just thinking about, we don't have time. Exodus 15, verse 6, remember when... It was describing the power of the Red Sea. And it said, remember, I mean, I always think, when I get to heaven, there's a lot of miracles you want to see, but do you think we'll get to see that one on video somehow? I mean, I just, if I was walking through the Red Sea and it was like, shh, shh, 
and you're just walking through a wall. There's millions of people walking through this thing. And, I mean, could you see dolphins? Or I, I don't know. Could you? I mean, sh- and, and there's a wall of water. And in Exodus 15, it says that it's the right hand of God. It's glorious in power. It was demonstrable, if you will. It was an incredible miracle. And I thought, well, frankly, I just feel at times overwhelmed personally. I mean, what do you do with wanting God's power to be at work, but you're overwhelmed, and maybe you feel that way, overwhelmed by either sin or temptation or the flesh or just discouragement? Like, I just woke up today. I just had a headache. My blood sugar was high um, because I'm diabetic too. So why is it high? I don't know. I did have a pancake today. That's probably bad. I looked down at my daughter. And I'm thinking power. I need power, but I don't feel power. Yeah, you know how God's power is released? This. So we go to communion. 2 Corinthians. I think we got it up there. Chapter 12. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in our, what? Weakness. You, you can grab his power. All you have to do is depend upon him. You might be here this morning overwhelmed by something, overwhelmed by a circumstance, by a trial, by a relationship, by finances, by the election. His power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. Listen, rely on His great power. Would you bow your head with me? We'll go to the Lord's table. Listen. If you need a strength somewhere today at work, at relationships, at business, here's a way to tap into that power. It's through the strength that He supplies. Listen, in just a moment, I hope you have that cup and the top of it is the bread. We remember His death on our behalf. Listen, uh, you can tell that everything I said today, every dimension of this, to know God, to know hope, to know inheritance, to know His power, is laid up in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for you.